it doesn't mean that they didn't care about you or you weren't enough for them or that they didn't love you. You're just not thinking of it that way. I hope people realize that that's probably not true, that that person didn't love them. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with survivors. I'm going to keep trying. A giant thanks to all the survivors who have joined me here on the podcast since we launched in July of 2020. And to everybody, all of you who listen. Really, thank you. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. You'll also see a few links in the show notes. The first is another way you can reach out by a recorded message. There are also a couple of links if you'd like to help us out with a financial contribution as we try to share these stories by these survivors with more people in more places and hopefully help them feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. And finally, you can help us out by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple. That really does help, and it only takes a minute or two. Now, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests, so please take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen, because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Sharon. Sharon lives in Illinois, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Sharon. What's going on? Oh, not much. Yeah, I've just had a little vacation from work. I've just been mostly trying to get things done. <laughs> Staycation. Nice. Staycation. All right. So it is Sharon who resides in the state of Illinois? Correct. I am, of course, curious. However, you want to start this off. The Sharon story, where does it start? Oh, that's such hard. Where does it start? Well, I would say there were actually kind of two incidents that I wanted to talk about if that's okay. The first one was after my divorce, uh, which was really kind of unexpected and really hard on me. And I didn't know at the time that I I think I had been seeing a therapist for anxiety, but I didn't know at the time that I actually had bipolar disorder. It was undiagnosed. So I, I think that explains part of it, just why my depression got so bad. It's mm. something that most people can, it's a really hard thing, but that people just kind of cope with. I'm not trying to say my pain was worse than other people's, but a lot of people, they just cope a little better, I guess, than my coping me- mechanisms were at the time. Uh, and I actually had a lot of really hard things. I couldn't sleep. And mm. that's actually what led into this a little bit. I, uh, I really, I was having a very, very hard time sleeping. I actually took Ambien at one point, which really kind of messed me up too. And I was drinking. I was drinking Mm. a lot. Uh, Trying, part of it trying to sleep, part of it just trying to kind of like numb the pain. 
So I remember this just kind of hit ahead. There was actually one incident where I took the Ambien and I tried to drive. It was at night and I barely remember that. So thank Thank God I could have really hurt myself or someone else, but I just kind of hit a pothole. This kind of good Samaritan found me and helped me get home. And he was thought again, that could that could have been another horrible incident, but he was just a nice guy. He brought me home and nothing happened. I actually saw him in the grocery store later and he's like, are you okay? And I was, I was thinking to myself, maybe like I'm a particularly religious person but I thought he was like a like a guardian angel or something so that was one I've always been very lucky like I've had these kind of brushes with, mm-hmm. with death and I've never actually experienced it but right. the time that I would consider that was getting really dark was yeah I just couldn't sleep I was crying all the time kind of like isolating myself having a really hard time yeah, bed. And then this friend took me over to her house uh, to stay the night. She's worried about me. And I remember she had this dog. It was like a little uh, dachshund, like a wiener dog. And mm-hmm. I was sleeping in her guest room. And I didn't sleep at all that night. Like not a wink. She get, I remember the dog kept coming over and licking my hand. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he knew something was wrong with me. Oh, and I remember uh, before that, she took me out for ice cream and she was saying, I had so many good friends, too, who were, you know, trying to help. So that's why I feel kind of bad that I slipped on that place. But she uh, was asking about my ex-husband and she said, and I think she met mom, but she said some things like, oh, well, was he like your best friend? And I I think she was trying to understand how upset I was. And you told everything to him and he was kind of like your closest, like how why I had this this sense of loss. I kind of said, yeah, yeah, he was like all those things. And then mm-hmm. I just kind of thought about it more. And I just <laughs> said she was responsible, but I couldn't sleep. And then the next morning, I remember I went back to my place. I was really out of it because I didn't sleep. And yeah, details are really fuzzy there. But and I remember when my friends were trying to text me. I think I tried to text my ex-husband ex-husband too mm-hmm. and then I just like I didn't know what to do I was so tired and so out of it and that's why I'm saying I don't know how intentional it was at this point but I just I, you know I was still drinking I had some leftover wine and I had some pills and I don't even remember what they were at this point I think I was still taking my anti- anti-anxiety I might have still had some sleeping at one point they switched me to trazodone from the ambient but I still had something to help me sleep and I just without even thinking about it something I didn't have the it was not rational it was not a plan but I just took I just kept drinking and taking the pills. And I think my only thought was, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And uh, I just need like the world to go away or I need to switch, like put the off switch on the world. Someone again, you know, thankfully, because I have such good friends. I think the one I was texting or might have even been, I think my ex-husband might have been responsible partially too, because I texted him, but were worried about me. And, you know, I guess I don't even know they found me kind of passed out and uh, an ambulance brought me to the ER. And obviously I was passed out. I just, the next thing I remember is just waking up in a psych ward. And that was my first time that I was mm-hmm. ever in a psych ward. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I just, and I couldn't, I could barely remember what happened. 
it was very strange, a strange experience, but I did get better and people came to visit me and Mm. uh, I realized how much they were worried about me and that helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It should be noted how important, and I don't think it gets discussed enough is what lack of sleep can do to somebody. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, you don't hear that very often. People talk about all kinds of things because I, I have some sleep and it really just takes over your life. Yeah. I can't imagine how difficult. How long ago was all of that? So that was way back in 2011. Yeah, around 2011. Just so I'm clear, you just referenced <laughs> two different, let's call them either attempts or almost attempts. The first one, car, good mm-hmm. Samaritan. The second one at home, both with pills and alcohol. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually wasn't even thinking of the car one. I didn't even, I was like, I even knew what I was doing. And I've read stories about people on Ambien who just get up and do stuff and they don't remember. And that's kind of like what it was. The second one, I was more, I guess you could call it that. Uh, The second one was more, and again, it wasn't planned or rational, but I was thinking more about, I I had this thought, like, I just can't handle things right now. I can't handle the world. Yeah. That's the one I would call closer to a suicide attempt. At some point you're like, there's nothing else that's going to work. I get that. I ask this question sometimes and it's sometimes semantics. Did you want to die? Or if I could tell you, you know what, tomorrow you're going to wake up and things are going to be okay. Would you take that? Boy, I mean, that's an interesting question. I would say, I think I would have been happy if I just kind of got to go to sleep. And that was that at least in that point in time, uh, afterward, when I started, when people started coming to visit me, I started getting a little, like, I got some sleep, I got some food and stuff like that. And medicine, I wouldn't have still thought that, but in that moment, in that precise mm-hmm. moment, and you know, it's kind of a cliche, you know, how people say like, I didn't really want to die. I just wanted the pain to stop. That mm-hmm. was kind of that experience. That was just, I just wanted Mm -hmm. To kind of go into a deep sleep and I wouldn't have minded if I didn't wake up because that would mean it was over. The pain was over. So you, so how long are you in the hospital that day, that first time? I feel bad admitting this because I had so much help, but I did that, that first time was maybe five days, but then I went back. There's several things, I guess, along the way you could say, but I, I, I kind of relapsed. So I guess that might even count as another and again, it was not, it was just alcohol. I took some alcohol and pills and it was like, I couldn't handle things. So, yeah. So you stayed in the hospital for five days and then how much after that do you end up going back again? Now that, see, it was really close in time. It was maybe like a couple weeks later. And so that's you, why I feel kind of bad that, well, I, you know, relapse so soon. I know people, other people do too. It's common. So I don't want to like draw any shame to it but it's like i got better all these kind of big challenging things were drawn or uh, thrown at me and i don't remember the exact timeline but i think i had to move it was shortly after that and i can't remember if it was in between those two times there was something about and i just had such my mind frame was so bad and it was really hard for me to get used to this new place and i was really worried about paying for it on my own. 
So yeah, just kind of all these stressors. I came back and I felt better, but it's like they were all still there and I still had to deal with them. And then I just, but it was really close. I had a relapse and I would say stayed about another week. And then after that, kind of got on my feet after that second time. Yeah. And at what point are you diagnosed with bipolar? So that is interesting because I I mentioned that because I think if I looked back at it through that lens, I think my emotions have always been really kind of strong and overwhelming, uh, maybe beyond what a lot of other people would be able to cope with. So I think that mm. was a part of it. But I actually had, so it's in another relationship and I had a manic episode. In 2015, a really bad manic episode for like three or four months. Like it was a long one and it was a really intense one. It was a bad one. So bringing in lack of sleep again, that's a common part of that. And I barely slept. Like that whole time I would sleep maybe three Mm. hours a night, but I was still, I don't know how much, I, I assume you know about bipolar disorder, but like I would be, I would get that much sleep and then I would still feel so energized during the day. <laughs> like I have to get all this stuff done and random spontaneous stuff. So that mm-hmm. was when that kind of came out and when I kind of got diagnosed with the bipolar disorder. And of course, I felt like on top of the world the whole time. I was so, so happy and euphoric and all the a million ideas exploding my brain all the time. Like, I do this. I'm going to write this book. I'm going to do mm-hmm. the, you know, paint this, do that, make this movie. Then I had to crash from that. So that's the that's the bad part. The crash is really really bad. And it's very, very common for people who have a full blown manic episode like that to try to end their life. I was so depressed. I was so, so depressed. I kind of cycled through medication regimens and stuff like that. But oddly enough, it wasn't until around 2018 that I really got seriously suicidal. And I think it was just because I felt like I've been dealing with this with the aftermath and the depression for so long and nothing was working, nothing, you know, I had ECT. I, I had, I, I did like the dramatic stuff. I had all kinds of medications, lithium, Seroquel as like nothing was working. So mm. I felt hopeless and I had the kind of, I had the PTSD of the things I did was manic. Cause it was a long manic episode. And I did a lot of things that were very hurtful to my friends without really realizing that I was doing them at the time. You don't, it's hard to control your behavior. And sometimes you can't even remember the things that you did. Some of them I don't remember. So I felt like it was, I had the stress of trying to repair those relationships. Although I was lucky. A lot of people kind of forgave me and gave around or came around. I had really good friends. I had a good partner. We broke up, but he kind of forgave me, gave me another chance, but I still, and I think it's my own, I have to say a lot of it was my own kind of self-doubt and self-esteem where I thought, yeah, that person is forgave me and they're being kind to me, but I don't really deserve them. And I did this and I, I couldn't stop thinking of that. I would have this PTSD, like I treated them this way and I'm not, that means I'm not really good for them. So it was a lot, my own thing, my own kind of self-defeatist or dark thoughts. But yeah, I tried all kinds of like, or outpatient therapy. I went inpatient a couple more times. And I think it was just after all that 
kind of wore me down that I finally just thought this is, I don't want to live with this pain for the rest of my life, this horrible depression. That's another cliche you hear a lot, but that kind of, uh, you feel like you're a burden on other people. You know, I don't want to live with this pain. I don't want other people to live with this pain or feel like they have to take care of me or worry about me or whatever. So yeah, all that kind of, it was a gradual process. What wound me down to wanting, wanting to do it again. Yeah. Let me back up for a second. So in that time, let's say between 2011, more or less, and 2018, are you able to work? Are you able to live kind of a, I don't, I don't like the word normal, but sort of typical life? Or is it just take over in your... Um, you know, that's a very good question. I feel like I've been really lucky in a lot of respects, which is probably why I, I've been able to come as far as I have with this, with this disorder. I have a really good job with the city. I'm a librarian and I took several leaves of absence like FMLA and I was able to do that. And I have really amazing health insurance. So I would say I still had a job at times. I was more capable of doing it than others. And there were a few times where it got really bad and I just had to take some time off to try to deal with my stuff. And there are, it's interesting. I think I've heard some of the other stories here where they say their boss or their job kind of limited their duties or responsibilities a bit. And sometimes that happened with me. It's kind of like a plus and a minus or double-edged sword. I, I would kind of feel sometimes like I don't want them to treat me with kid gloves or whatever, or think that I couldn't, wasn't capable of things. But at the same time, sometimes I wasn't as capable as I used to be. So it was a really hard thing for me. And everyone knew what I was going through. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, people weren't condescending. They were just really trying to be nice. You know, like, do you need to take a break? We'll just have you do this for now. And then you can do that later. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky in that my job was very understanding. They weren't prejudiced. They all knew exactly what was going on with me. They saw me when I was manic. I was at work and they saw me when I was big. And they were actually the ones who told me, listen, you need to take, you can't work here right now. You need to take a leave of absence. Because I was, yeah, <laughs> I was scaring some people, patrons and staff. And yeah, so I couldn't, it wasn't one of those things where I could lie and tell them, oh, I just went and had like some random medical issue. They already saw it and they already knew. So I couldn't hide it. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, other things they knew about my other stuff. I also had a boss who was very understanding of depression issues because she had Mm -hmm. them too. When I told when I would tell her I'm going to do ECT, I'm going to go away for a while to do this outpatient group she was very very supportive and understanding Mm. so you just go do what you need to do we don't want you here unless you feel well and feel like working and everything so I guess that's a really long rambling answer but yes I I had a job but I did take a lot of time off over the 10 you know maybe a few weeks a couple times a year or something when I've heard other stories about people who mm-hmm. this comes out at work or whatever, yeah, and people there's disability laws and you're not really supposed to treat people differently, but it happened. I know it happens, and so yeah, I was lucky. Hmm. 
All right. So what happened in 2018? Not what led up to it, because I think you've, you've kind of shared that, but you, you try again, right? It's interesting because the first one was more active and then the second one was like a lot more planning and very, very intentional. And I wanted to do it. I told everyone that, but I never got around to doing. But because of what happened before, I was trying to find like a drug that would really work. And mm-hmm. like, it can't be like before, like this really has to work this time. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing all this research online and trying to find drugs, like the right drugs and everything. And I was trying to get, get a hold of the drugs. And I think that's when I kind of got intercepted by my family and my partner and everything. And they had me go to psych ward again, even there, I was trying like still scheming and still trying to get, get the drugs. I was there. That was a long stay. I think it was close to a month. Mm -hmm. And even the first week there, I was still like actively suicidal. There could have been any way I got my hands on anything or I, I definitely would try it or anything that I thought would work. I guess that was the key. I just really wanted, like, I didn't want, want it to be like before, where it's just like pills and alcohol and they wake up. That was a really good stay. That was a really long time. It was a better facility. And I know something people have talked about, it should not be this way, but it's kind of like you get what you pay for. When you go to a psych ward, just like anything else, this was a, a, it was much more expensive. It was a much better facility, a better kind of day programs and treatment or regimen and stuff like that. So that actually seemed to kind of, kind of get me back on my feet really for the first time in a few years. Mm. And I guess really it's not that I thought my time was bad and long and everything. But again, just hearing other people's stories, it can take a really long time to recover from a manic episode. And that was like my first one. And I didn't know. I didn't know that I had that. And it was really scary and overwhelming. So really the fact that it was a few took a few years isn't really too bad. But I would say I was very, I was depressed and suicidal really like pretty much three years after that and then it was just kind of everything kind of wore me down it was more kind of a gradual like wearing down to where I just kind of felt like I just wanted to be over but yeah since that time in 2018 I mean I definitely think about suicide sometimes but I have not had an active and not an attempt not really thinking about it actively yeah wow you're obviously comfortable to some degree, talking about it, you reached out, you took the next step, and then we met and we're talking. So thank you. Oh, sure. No, I think what you're doing is so brave. And I think uh, a lot of people are afraid to talk about it. I think it's really cool that you've gotten so many people to open up about it. I'm sure it's really cathartic. It's hard. I was a little nervous and I even, I was thinking a couple of times, oh, do I really want to do this? But I think it's important. Like you said, it's really important to share a story. And I was thinking of some other people uh, that I've met who have been brave enough to do that and are really advocates. And I thought, if they can do it, I can do it too. And maybe this podcast does that for people too. Hopefully. Yeah, it might. A couple other questions. It sounds like from what you've shared, friends that visited you in the hospital, you mentioned a couple of relationships, family came up. It sounds like you have people in your corner. Oh, yeah. I always have. 
I think that's really helped me. I, at times I feel guilty that it hasn't helped me more or, and I know some people have, have been hurt or felt like, I don't know quite how to phrase this. It felt like I kind of betrayed them, you know, especially when I would tell them sometimes that I felt better than would kind of go and spiral again. And, and I can understand that. It can be very painful sometimes for family and friends to to watch this kind of thing happen. If I think about suicide, I think about a couple of, you know, my friends or family and just how just how hurt they looked when they would come to visit me. Mm. And oh, it just kind of pulls on my heartstrings, but I've been really lucky to have very very supportive people, yeah. Yeah. You brought up two things that I think make a huge difference. I bring them up only as an observation because to some degree out of people's control, to some degree. One, I think if you don't have anyone in your corner, it's almost impossible to get better. Yeah. One person makes a big difference. And that is also cliche perhaps, but you can't do it alone. I don't have the numbers on this. Maybe we could get the numbers if we if we dug enough, but the number of people who end their lives who have had a long period of isolation, I think is rather high. Oh, definitely. It doesn't mean that people don't end their lives who are surrounded by friends and family and have a job they like. That happens too. Mm -hmm. But you will see a direct correlation, I am sure, with isolation slash loneliness. And because then, because when you're in that space, all the stuff happens. You drink, you drug, Mm -hmm. the the, the, the non-sleeping, you have an episode and you're alone. It's an impossible. The other thing, and then I'll shut up, is money. Money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Health insurance, mm. knowing knowing tomorrow you're gonna have enough money to buy food, all these things, man. And again, I, I don't I bring them up because they're on my mind. I'm not suggesting a solution. I don't have one. So I'm glad legitimately that you have those things mm-hmm. so that you can give yourself a chance mm-hmm. at least, right? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's really interesting that you bring that up. I think in both of those situations, I think those are essential. But in both of those situations, I had kind of a false, false belief that that's what it was. The mm-hmm. first time I was going, I had this very strong sense of isolation after my divorce, because that was the first time I ever lived alone. I just mm-hmm. went from you know, families to roommate to living with my husband. And, and I just felt I was sleeping alone. And even though I wasn't really alone, I had these people reaching out to me. It was just more aloneness than I felt before, I guess. And then also the- Just real quick, that is not, yeah. Loneliness is not, I'm just speaking first person here. Mm. Yeah. If you're in a cabin by yourself for nine weeks at a time, there's a pretty good chance you're lonely, but there are, and I'm one of these people, I'm around people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always matter. Yeah. Like you could have your friend. I mean, you're not asking me for validation or anything. I'm not offering it, but friends and family and people calling is not enough always. It doesn't mean you're not feeling profoundly alone, lonely. Yeah, no. And you make a good point. I wasn't isolated. Like I get what I said, I, I think it's kind of like a false, false notion. You're mm-hmm. right. It's more like loneliness. Isolation often leads to loneliness, but it is by no means necessary. Right. You're in Chicago. I'm in Chapel Hill. We're, we're around people sometimes. Pay attention, man, because it doesn't mean because you see the person a couple of times a week at work or at the gym that they're doing okay. It doesn't. And money, right? And money. That was the other. Like I kind of said before, it shouldn't be that way, but you give 
what you pay for a lot with, you can get the new, what they call the new generation drugs. You can get better facilities for, for treatment. Yeah. I've experienced that and I do have good health insurance. I think those times when I was feeling less capable, I would have this irrational fear that I was going to lose my job. And that was another thing that kind of haunted me. So it's like, even though it wasn't really, I, I don't think it was a rational fear. Everyone was like, oh, we'll be support you, happy when you come back. I still had it. And that was one of the things I worried about is then what I will afford my, my medications would be thousands of dollars if mm -hmm. I didn't have my health insurance. I take a lot of medication. <laughs> so yeah, no, that is really key, unfortunately, to getting some of the best treatment. Yeah. This has come up a bunch in this podcast. You have a week stay at a hospital, knowing you're going to get home and face that bill. Don't mm -hmm. that that can't help someone's mental health. Come on. Yeah. Of course, it's going to make somebody probably worse. It's not going to help. I know that. Again, I don't have an answer. I don't know. It seems weird to me. The people in your life, or at least some of them, they know that you have been uh, near suicide, yes? Yeah, I would say actually probably most people who know me well know that because I'm kind of an open book now, especially since I do the festival and kind of like me mental health blogging. And stuff. I'm pretty much right. kind of like an open book about it because I have kind of like the same thought that you have. You know, if you put it out there, then more people... Are going to respond. And that's actually, I mean, you've probably noticed you said people aren't talking about suicide. That is one of the harder, I would say, topics to broach. But mental health has become a much bigger, I'm sure you've noticed, topic on the internet, on blogs, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. It's becoming much more open, I think. And a lot more people are talking about their issues with it. Yeah. So. I think it's generational to some degree. I think. Younger people just seem to be a little bit more open. Yeah, definitely. I have a couple of questions and then I want to hear more about the festival okay. and the work that you're doing around all of that and related things. Up until 2011, in your entire life, had you ever thought about suicide? That's a good question. I wouldn't say really thought about it, but when I do, sometimes I try to look back before that and think, you know, where did this kind of come from? I definitely thought about not actively but I think I was very, very depressed. I guess it's normal as an adolescent. And even as a kid, I just, I, I would sometimes feel really lonely and I feel this kind of extreme sadness mm -hmm. come out of nowhere, you know? And I think that could have been what I didn't know. I had a mood disorder. And I think sometimes that's kind of the difference between, you know, there's situational depression and then there's, if you have a mood disorder, sometimes this kind of, kind of comes on for no reason, or you inflate mm -hmm. something or take something that's not really, shouldn't be a reason. And you, you know, you kind of make it a reason. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's like poor emotional regulation. You have to work harder at it, I guess I should say. <laughs> put it that way. Right. Yep. What's the okay. what's the work you're doing in the festival world? Like I said, I think it fits with what you're doing so well, because that's the whole idea of what we wanted to do with that. And I actually did kind of come up with it and organize it and everything. I mean, it's a small grassroots. I think it, it seems like yours kind of is too, but film festival where people <laughs> submit their uh, films. And there's a lot that uh, address suicide but basically it could be any mental health topic uh depression anxiety bipolar disorder schizophrenia just 
or really just people who have, you know, I try to be very open and have some kind of like, not even necessarily a diagnosis, but some kind of episode or they're scared of leaving their house or just little things like that. So it's just all has to do with mental health. It has to have Mm. a theme of mental health. And then other than that, it's pretty open. So we've gotten all kinds of like takes interpretations, you know, and some people tell me it's not too depressing, but there are people have submitted, even a couple of people submitted comedies about suicide. A couple of those. So all kinds of musicals, animations. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways you can interpret it. And you can definitely take a humorous take even on something. It's funny, like I look back on things that happened to me that at the time I thought was horrifying. And now I can kind of laugh at it. Like, so yeah, you you can have all kinds of different takes. So lots of great documentaries. And like I was saying before, there are a couple that were really powerful kind of suicide awareness films. There was one, I don't know if I'm talking too much at length about, but there was a teenager who actually tried to, or she did, she shot herself and she survived, but she was paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair. And now that's like all she does is uh, suicide awareness, I guess I should call it. If she goes and speaks about it and shows her film, her documentary about it. So, but again, like you're saying, young people, I feel like young people are really into it. They're, they're really passionate about mental health, which is really cool. Mm. But yeah, something really interesting she said too in her film was uh, she didn't have a name for it, which she was feeling like no one ever talked to her about depression and anxiety and she said I didn't even know what that was I mean I'm sure she knew what it was but she didn't know that's what she was feeling you know mm-hmm. and I think that's for her the reason it built up so that's another reason to put it out there and that's what she says too is so people have more awareness of it before it escalates you know and that that this is a yeah. thing that other people feel and it's a real mm-hmm. thing what year did you start this 2019 and it is a film festival in which people submit, let's call them mental health related films. And then you curate the films, you choose which ones, or do you just play them all? It's, uh, how does that work? I would love to play them all, but <laughs> we do as many as possible. And I do always try to have at least a few people help me screen them, but we actually get so many. <laughs> I mean, at least a couple, usually like a couple hundred. So it's like too many to really mm-hmm. show all. But what, so then what happens is we kind of look at them and try to choose kind of a variety of different topics. You know, if there's no, if there's a film about OCD or schizophrenia mm-hmm. or something, different facets of mental health. So that kind of weighs into it. And then a kind of different variety. I always like to have at least, you know, a couple that are kind of funny. You know, I try to do that. So it's not too heavy. Like we get movies from all around the world. So it's really cool to be able to show, yeah, stuff from all over. We had last year, there was one about depression from Ghana. And again, it was a teenage girl from Ghana who made this film about her depression. That was amazing. Yeah, amazing. So (laughs) congratulations. That's pretty amazing in, in a relatively short period of time. When you say you screen them, because I don't know much about film, you there's a physical location people go and it's like for the full day they're watching these different films. Yeah. Uh, well, the first year, <laughs> 2018, right. we did it at a venue in Chicago called Comfort Station, which was mm. a free kind of a little kind of small, but uh, multi 
disciplinary arts kind of place where they do art shows and they screen a lot of films. I mean, it's just about 25 to 30 people and we screen them on just on a projector on the screen. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. pretty kind of basic. But yeah, after the uh, pandemic, we uh, switched for the last couple of years and have done a virtual festival on the Eventive platform, which a lot of festivals are using too. I always, my goal was always wanted to be free because I, I want everybody to be able to see the movies, kind of spread awareness. Usually I try to plan around October 10th, which is World Mental Health Day, and people can lock them and watch them for about a month. Kind of like a video on demand thing, you know, if you like buy a movie on Amazon and you have a certain period of time to watch it. But this year I'm trying to plan a hybrid so that we just do like one night in a theater, but then also the event of, I hadn't planned on doing the virtual festival, but once we launched it, I really liked the fact that people all around the world could watch it. So, you know, friends and families of these filmmakers in Singapore could watch yeah. it. Or, yeah. So that was really cool. And there were definitely more viewers. Yeah. So you're going to keep it going. Oh yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's like kind of my pet project and there's other people who are, really into it now too or involved we'll definitely put a link to that for sure very cool so based on your own experiences all the stuff you shared in addition to this ongoing film project what are there's probably a long list here so i want to hear a couple of uh, myths around mental health mental illness suicide what are the ones that come up that you want to clearly and explicitly dispel as bullshit Nothing is ever kind of like concrete, but I would say number one is just because someone uh, tries to take their life. It doesn't mean that they, that they didn't care about you or you weren't enough for them or that they, they didn't love you, you know what I mean? Or that they weren't, that they weren't even thinking of you. A lot of times I think people from what I've experienced and heard who get to that point, you're just not thinking of it that way. You're not, and you're probably not even thinking that you're not. Or if you are, you're thinking maybe you're a burden to that person. So it's just whatever is distorted thinking. I just think it's important for people. And I know it's really hard for people. We've had a couple of films from that angle too, who are survivors of someone else's suicide. But I really hope people really, and I think anger is a very normal reaction. And like, why did you, this was selfish. Why did you do it to me and everything? But I hope people realize that that's probably not true, that that Mm -hmm. person didn't love them, you know? Right. I agree. Yeah. This thing comes up a lot with people feeling like a burden. Someone in your life telling you if you feel like a burden that you're not a burden is probably not enough for them to not feel like a burden. And I wonder where that disconnect is. And I don't think there's an answer here, but I just think what people do both with their words and their actions. Here's the unpopular perspective. I think a lot of times people won't talk about this. I think people do think that person there is a burden. I think some people feel like a burden because the people in their lives feel like they're a burden. Because I get the sense that people hear the podcast and someone says, oh, I'm a burden. And people are thinking, you're not a burden. What I want to say is, you know, there's a reason they think that. And it might not just be all because they're mentally ill. It might actually be that there are people in their lives who look at them as a burden and act that way. It's common. So I don't know why I'm on my little rant here. You know, in, you know, in your space and sometimes in my space, we talk about how important it is. Just talk, get it out, share it with the world. 
And I say, yes, but there's a reason why people don't. And if you've lived in the world and share difficult things, it doesn't take very long for you to understand why people hesitate to share things. What I would love to communicate with people more than anything is not to the suicide attempt survivors, what they should do. It's to the people around them and what they might explore doing. Because I think sometimes they're not helping in ways that they think they are. Does that make any sense what I said? Probably. Yes. No, absolutely. It's about the burden thing. So that's kind of part of what dissolved my, my last relationship. But that's a really hard dynamic because you want, if you love someone, you want to be their caretaker, but like, how much are you their enabler? And, you know, that person can really be a burden. And sometimes if they come to rely on you, they can become more of a burden, you know? So it is sadly, it is a thing that sometimes if you think that you're a burden, you kind of are a little bit, you know, like at one point I wasn't able to do that much for myself. And actually that's what led me to feeling very, very guilty and kind of, I knew, I knew that I, I knew that I was, it's hard because that can be the reality. Absolutely. Mm. Do you think that moving forward, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, or if you do, please tell me, I want to know about that. Do you think that suicide is an option for you? Is it a possibility? Might you try again? You know, I really don't want to, but I don't want to say, I don't like putting definites on anything and the way the world is going. Who knows? I'm not saying that I, I could get into a very deep depression again. I would try my best not to see people hurt or the way that I hurt them. But who knows if the world, if we descend into nuclear war or something and everything's, <laughs> and I have some pills and I'm just like, <laughs> it's the end of the world. Mm. I don't want to take any option off the table. <laughs> I'm going I'm to try my best not to. But it's interesting that you say, kind of sue and I don't know if this is exactly your words but you're not you're not quite suicide prevention but you're more kind of like suicide awareness and I know some people I I mean this is kind of a different thing this is going to go down a whole moral can of (laughs) open a whole moral can of worms is way too much time to talk about but some people think people should have the right to suicide for bad terminal illness and and things of that nature if your mental health is that bad let me let me let me press this let me push this a little further (laughs) And you can push back. And audience, if you hear this, you can push back. Why can't I just have the option and I don't have to justify anything to you? Mm. What if I just don't want to live? Yeah. Uh, just a thought. Why, why, why should anybody tell me how to live or not? I got to tell you, I lean in that direction. I understand the, the risk in the words enabling, particularly someone's like hearing this and they're younger, maybe, right? You know, because people make decisions like you in part, it sounds like, and maybe, you know, you look back, you're glad you didn't die. It sounds like, so you wouldn't want someone to do something that maybe it could have gotten. I don't know. Some people don't want to be alive. I don't know if it's always a sign of mental illness. It might be. I don't know. No, you actually bring up a really good point. Um, And I mean, you kind of took even further than I did. There's people who advocate. That's just kind of like in my personal sphere, like. If you have a really bad terminal illness, if you're suffering demons in your head every day to a point where it's incredibly painful, like how is that different from a really painful uh, cancer or something like that sits in your head? 
But I, that was just uh, addressing one facet. But you're bringing up a very... <laughs> well, we're, number one, we are obsessed with keeping people alive yeah. in this country. Yes. We're obsessed with it. Suffering with cancer, we're going to do everything we can to keep them alive. Period. You know, I'll, let me flip this. Because one of the myths that comes up or conversation points that comes up all the time, suicide is not selfish. This comes up all the time. And when we talk about this thing, and I hear about people preventing people or keeping people in long periods of pain and suffering, I'm like, you know, let's flip this and talk about selfishness in a different way. And who, who might be the selfish one here? I'm not trying to point fingers. Well, maybe I'm a little bit. You're trying to keep somebody alive who's been in pain for years. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Or why should that person stay alive just for you? You know, <laughs> to say something controversial too, like if yeah. they're in that much pain, why should they make that sacrifice? It's a very controversial notion, but I actually, uh, why can't you talk I'm about it? I'm in trouble, but I kind of agree with you. And I've had this, this, it's an unpopular opinion. Wait, who's getting you in trouble? What do you mean? <laughs> the suicide police? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's a pretty controversial opinion, but I do kind of agree with you that I'm kind of pro choice. Women, many of them, I don't know how you feel. It's my body. Let me do what I want with my body, right? Mm-hmm. Which includes mm-hmm. pregnancy. Is it, is it, and it might be a, an unfair analogy here, but is that different than me saying, it's my body, it's my life? Let me do what I want with it. And I'm not sort of formally or officially advocating for anything. No one really cares what I think anyway, Sharon. It just makes (laughs) me, you know, when you're talking about it and you said this thing, why can't people have a choice to end their lives if they're in these like long periods of pain? And then you're worried. It sounds like, oh my, well, what are they, I'm going to get in trouble. That is telling, not about you, (laughs) but about a culture that just won't even have the conversation. Mm -hmm. You can't even talk about it. Like, come on, what are we doing? Now I'm going on a bender. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not telling you what to do. I don't think I'm giving you ideas. I'm, we're just talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. That's just something where I don't know what it is. The, the government has a very strong interest in protecting life, even for really people, really sick people, like physically sick people. It's, I think, you know, some of the court decisions and stuff I read about, they say there's always the possibility that people are going to get better. Or there's going to be a better treatment, like some new treatment yeah. comes along. But if you take the, it's irreversible, basically. If you take That's the true. life away, it's irre, it's an irreversible decision. So it is, it's one of those really hard kind of weighty moral questions. It is. It also presupposes, and I'm not sure if I'm using that word correctly, that you're sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Healthy people don't think that way. Healthy mm-hmm. people don't take their own lives. So by definition, if you're having those thoughts or acting those thoughts, you are in some way ill. I don't necessarily agree because I think we could talk about all kinds of circumstantial things that lead people down that path. I just remember talking to my therapist. It's just one person's opinion, but he has done some research. I said, do you think everybody who tries to end their life is mentally ill? Or, or at least by definition, he says, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Like 40% of the people are not at least oh, diagnosed. Oh. Maybe some are undiagnosed. Maybe in like 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, we'll be able to um, know if you're officially mental. Like you could just look at someone's brain and be like, <laughs> they definitely are and they're definitely not. But we can't do that right now, I don't think. Well, yeah, no, I, 
don't believe that. I, you know, people kind of like we were talking before. I mean, someone who's getting a really bad divorce who isn't mentally ill and is like losing their kids or what, something could be enough to push a lot of people to the edge without them actually having, you know, chronic depression where it's just really hard and they're like, how am I going to? I, I could totally see that, you know? The, the argument that people will make is well, there's a lot of people who are in similar circumstances and they don't take their lives. Mm-hmm. So if you're the person taking your life, and I don't know what to say to that. Like, okay, people handle things differently. We know that to be true. Some people get upset when someone breaks up with them. Some people get less upset. I don't know. At the end of the day, I like that there are no clean answers. Those are because things that are so black and white are boring to me. Yeah, no, I actually like that you opened that up because I was kind of, you may be able to tell, I was kind of on the verge of going down that. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a choice, but that is extremely controversial and people do, you're right. That's something that people are not ready to, to say that we shouldn't try to stop people. You you know what I mean? So yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if people will think differently in the future. I mean, people are already thinking differently now about suicide. They think of it less as like an act and more of kind of like, uh, you know, people say they died by suicide, like you die from a disease. So that's kind of different already. Um, I don't know if it will change anymore. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think they will probably... And I, I don't know this, of course. I also don't have a crystal ball. I think there will always be some stigma because it is, it's irreversible. It does feel in some ways not natural. You can argue the one thing more than anything else that we're here to do is just survive and then create life. More than anything else, that's why we're here. You can make that argument. People make that argument. So by undoing that, it just feels like, huh, there's a, di- there's a disconnect there, right? So I get it. I just and then and then you have a we're not getting into religion, but you have that whole part. There just there, there's no room to talk because it's an absolute sin. So that's mm-hmm. off the table. You also have a lot of people making a lot of money off of sick people, but that's also another conversation. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess to argue to argue devil's advocate with yeah. that, there are a lot of people who have regretted their attempts or right. you know, gotten much better after. It happened. So that's a good point. You make uh, a very good point. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of those people would probably tell people who are thinking about it that's not worth it or that yep. things got better. So yep. I I cannot argue with that. You're right. And of course we can't ask people excuse me, we can't ask people who aren't alive and their suicide attempt was completed because they're not here. We can only talk to people <laughs> who did not complete for one reason or another. I would like to talk to those people. I am very curious. And I would ask them that question. That might be one of the first questions I ask after we broke the ice, of course. I would say, yeah, do you, are you cool with that? Did it work out? Could you? I'm curious about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's hard to be alive. It's hard work. It's painful a lot. It's who knows what's, what else there is. That would be a cool movie idea. I'm going to do that. I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know how to make movies, but how about the idea Someone's going to take this idea and then pitch you and they're going to be in your festival and they get fucking famous and then they won't give me credit. Fine. People who have died by suicide. I don't know what the movie's structure is. I don't know. And they're reflecting back and maybe two people regret it and two don't. Could be an interesting movie. Maybe. Given that there are 
millions of attempts every year, right? Millions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't get a lot of movies given the numbers. Yeah. Given what's happening versus, let's say, the art or art that is being created, it ain't much. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, some people call it a suicide epidemic, and it is. It's one of the biggest killers. We can look at these statistics and say, okay, last year in the United States, an estimated 50,000 people ended their life, right? They died by suicide. We can estimate that for everyone that died, 10 try. That means a half a million people try. Ballpark, right? What yeah. I want what I want to know, who is suicidal but doesn't try? Some of them will. Many of them won't. I would like to know that number because I would guess if half a million people try, millions. And I don't say that because I have a podcast and it's sexier. Yeah. Millions of people are suicidal. Mm-hmm. Have to be. Just just algorithmically, mathematically, it has to be true. So I don't know what that means or what to do with that, but that's just, it's just a lot of people. It's a lot of people for something that we have such a hard time talking about. That's what I don't understand. If it were like 34 people, like leprosy, shit, we should talk about that. It's an awful disease. Almost nobody has it here. I understand why it might not be a big conversation topic. Of course, if you have it, you want to find a community to talk about it, but this is a huge thing. That's what I don't get, Sharon. (laughs) it's not a small thing you actually this is something i kind of wanted to bring up in my story earlier that i forgot about but i went to work i think it was the night before i went and slept at my friend's house and stayed up all night i went to work that day and i was just absolutely i think they all saw that i couldn't like pull it together and i was crying and crying and i Mm -hmm. went to my coworker, and she's like oh you know you should go home are you okay and i said to her have you ever thought about killing yourself and I was really surprised what she said to me. She said, I think about it every day of my life. Mm. I was like, wow, mm-hmm. how many people <laughs> just walk? But she said, I remember what she said to me too. She said, but you don't like hurting people. You don't want to do that because you don't want to hurt people and you don't like that. So you asked her if she ever thinks about it. Mm-hmm. She said, yes. You told her also you do. Mm-hmm. And then soon after that, she told you what to do. Uh, yeah not saying she shouldn't or should do that it's interesting to me shockingly that wouldn't be my way of engaging but i don't have all the answers either i just have what i do maybe that was the right thing to you does that maybe that's what you needed to hear i don't know what do i know i think you're right that's like the automatic response for most people you know don't do this to your don't do this to your loved ones these things are gonna get better i mean that's a lot of what i i would say it's like 90 percent of what i would hear when i or what would you say to people? I wouldn't say a damn thing. I'd shut the <laughs> fuck up. To me, the most important thing and the only thing I can offer, what I can offer that I actually think is a legitimate, for lack of a better word, gift that I think a lot of people aren't getting is I would do my best to listen. And by the way, I'm not saying this to you as much as to someone who might be hearing this. That is not a passive act to listen. It's an active thing. And that's a skill and one that can be developed. And oh, by the way, some people are probably always going to suck at it, unfortunately. But it's not passive. So to engage somebody without doing those things, like, hey, imagine what it's going to do to your parents. No. Curiosity is such a powerful thing if it's real. One of the things I feel very blessed about is I'm just curious about a lot of things, especially this stuff. So if you told me I'm thinking about killing myself, I would really just mostly be curious about it. Yeah. And yeah, I would probably follow up and I'd probably say, I'm concerned about you. So what what are we doing tonight? You want to talk? You know what I mean? I wouldn't just be like, all right, whatever. I'd be caring about it. If you want to go to the hospital, I'll drive you. 
if that's what you want, but I, I wouldn't like make the person feel bad. I wouldn't try to make them feel guilty. I wouldn't try to shame them. I don't think that's what her intentions were, but the, to me, the most dangerous people are not the ones who are like, let's say, for example, really insulting and dismissive because fuck them. We don't pay attention to them anyway, unless you live with them. Then it really sucks. It's like your parents. The dangerous ones are the ones that are kind of the caring ones, but they don't listen very well. Those are the ones that squeak through. They're like, all right, I'll give you a pass because I know you love me. But they're saying these things that are not helpful. Those are the ones that worry me the most. And I think it's such an extreme thought or act or move or whatever you want to call it that people do feel kind of obligated. If you're talking about something like depression, you know, there'll be what's going on. Why do you feel this way? Stuff like that. If you're talking about suicide and suddenly it's more of kind of like what people would consider like an emergency. That's to me the part of the broader conversation is that, I mean, sure, if somebody's literally pulling a gun out, that's different. Then they're actually about to do it. It might be different than someone who just brings it up. They're not doing mm-hmm. it right now. Like take a breath, right? But I went to a conference on mental health stuff. And one of the speakers who I spoke with afterwards was the guy who is, I don't know his exact role. He was the guy more than anybody else who would talk with people who were about to jump off of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was like, probably not only him, but he was one of the people. And I said, what do you say to them? And even in that case, when person's not just talking about it, but about to do it, nothing different. I just listen. He said the greatest thing I could do for them. And I think the thing that proved, I don't know if the word's the most beneficial because I guess his goal was to get them off the ledge, right? And hopefully they'd want to keep living at some point. But he said, yeah, just listen. Yeah. That was my long way of just saying, even in that case, that's, that's what he did. So if he does that in that case, when your friend tells you at the coffee shop that they're thinking about it, you could do that too. You bring up a really, uh, another really interesting question, which is like, where do you draw the line between what is a hypothetical or what is a plan? You know, usually what they would tell you is if you need to go to the hospital or need to talk or need help, if you have like a plan, that's, that's usually the step is an active plan. Are you actively planning? But what is an active plan? Is it something that you've just thought about? Like, oh, I'm going to go jump off this bridge. Or is it something where it's like, oh, at four o'clock PM on Tuesday, when, you know, my, my spouse leaves, I'm going to take this and this. And by the way, I have no problem with that four step thing where, cause I was a crisis text line counselor for some time. Yeah, that was it. Like you, you know, at some point you always ask those questions. And then if they answer yes to that, then you ask the second one, the third one. You know, are you thinking about it? Do you have a plan? Do you have means? Whatever the four are, I forgot them for. Great. You have a plan. Now now we can put you in a hospital. Mm-hmm. You're going to yeah. stay there for a week. You're going to get mostly ignored. Tell me if your experience was different the first time. The food was good, probably. <laughs> probably gained a little weight. They changed your meds. You talked to a real doctor collectively for an hour uh, and you got a big bill. Was I way off on that? Was that fair to say? <laughs> was that your first experience? Yeah, I mean, the first place I went to wasn't great. So yeah, there wasn't much to do. There was, but they, they fed you at regular times and uh, gave you medication regular, regular times. I think just all that for me with no sleep and like not taking very good at care of myself helped a lot. And then the visiting times. But yeah, I wouldn't say it was a great. But I mean, like, like transformed my mind or anything or changed my mind. Yeah, I'm sure there are many people who have a plan, excuse me, Someone intervenes, 
they go to a hospital or something, they get some kind of intervention and they don't try again. And they might even have live a good life. I'm not saying that's not possible. It might even be common. I don't know. I don't know. It's weird to complain about things and then not offer solutions. And I don't really have them other than my solution is just learn how to listen. That is literally the only message I have. Yeah. And, and burn your bills from the hospital because fuck them. <laughs> No, yeah. I, and what is the antidote? I, some people go on to, like me, or relapse very shortly after. That's actually very common, I later learned. Right. Uh, after they get out of the hospital, what is the magic thing I that mean, you people say? But you're right. I, I think it comes out support and mm-hmm. finance are probably the two biggest, two of the biggest factors. Right. Right. And how do you change that in someone's life? You don't. I mean, you can try with different things in a group here and some subsidies here, but they're probably returning to that life. I know my therapist used to say this, that your life force or your will is actually pretty strong and Mm -hmm. it's there. And if there's something that can kind of bring it out in you. So that's what people probably think they're doing. I mean, that's what my therapist said to me, even said to me when I would talk about suicide, she'd say, your life force is very strong. It's hard to overcome it, you know? And that's why a lot of people have a really hard time actually going, carrying out a a plan that they have. Well, I think we're designed to stay alive. I don't doubt Mm -hmm. that. Because you think about all the things that had to go right in your body and mind today for you not to be dead is astounding. When I learned a little bit about biology, I'm like, my God, there's like millions of things happening simultaneously, perfectly. The fact that we're having a conversation here, words (laughs) are coming out of my mouth that you recognize is astounding. Yeah. So I think there's a total life force. But I also think sometimes the force dies. I think people assume that's the natural state of things. You know, the natural state of things is you want to live and there's just something wrong. I'm just going to say from their perspective, there's something wrong with you right now. Right. But that would be restoring the natural, restoring you back to your natural state or order is that you would want to live. And that's, people would even talk about it in those terms and kind of like old medical (laughs) language. Like Maybe there's some truth to that. Sure. I mean, if somebody's been struggling for you know 30 years though that becomes a bit of a hollow mm-hmm. argument maybe yeah. but then you know that people will say like you we, we talked about earlier there will always be maybe new medications or treatment unless the world just ends or medicine ends yeah there are going to be new treatment there's going to be new medication i mean how long do you wait i'm not <laughs> saying i want you to wait wait i'm just saying i understand people saying you know what i've waited for a really long time and so this i might want i might consider that route is that crazy of me? No, I totally understand. That's actually what pretty much what happened to me after a few years of bipolar depression. I just, I don't want to live with that for the rest of my life, you know? So I, and that was only a few years. You're right. People, some people have been years and years and in, in, in yes. terrible pain. Yeah. But again, you know, my, my, my take on it, it's certainly unpopular, maybe even immoral or unethical. I'm not saying to do anything. What I am saying is, I think the idea of people having a choice, something I'm exploring. Yeah. So it's one of those big moral or ethical questions I don't think is really has an answer, but you're right. I think people are very, there's something about that, that people are very kind of pushy and defensive about, or so like you, no, no, you can't encourage people or not even encourage, 
Well, they would say that not actively discouraging is, yeah. is encouraging. I don't know if there's anything else I can think of like that. There probably are things where it's just, oh my God, how could you say that? I'll listen to the people who say the, well, I probably wouldn't, but if you have these like platitudes, Mm. you know what, you know what I want to say to them? If you were available in my life when I was really low and you sat with me, I'll listen, but you weren't. So I'm not listening to you now, but you know what I mean? Like if you were there for me and you listened and you were okay with that, then I'll hear you out. I think. But if you're not, and then you're just offering these like quick fixes, do you expect people to actually listen to you or why would they? Well, again, I'm going to just say on the other side of that, I think it's really hard for a lot of people don't just don't know what to say or how to respond to that. And they think that's what they're supposed to, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. Sure. You can't think of anything else to say for someone who just had death or so. so. (laughs) I appreciate your perspective because you're coming at it from a far more open and empathetic. But when do you stop giving people a pass for sucking at listening? (laughs) I mean, there's so many things that we will give people shit about, but not that. So I'm not saying you shouldn't give people a pass. I think it's a nice way to go through life because it's it's much more, there's a heart centered approach, but it's too bad we don't teach this stuff in a earlier in life. Maybe, I don't know. That's, I didn't learn it. I don't remember learning anything about that formally. Certainly not. I went through some things and I remember being, I really want to be around that person and not that person and not all those people. What are those two people doing? Oh, mostly the thing they're doing is listening. Well, Hmm. Let me look at that. All right. Maybe I should try that. Can I do that? Yeah. I'm going to try that because people feel less shitty when you do that around them. And that makes me feel good. It's pretty fucking simple, Sharon. <laughs> it's not that hard. People train for years trying to like get better at piano. That's hard. Taekwondo, that shit's hard. <laughs> Running a fucking marathon is hard. Shutting up and being a little curious. I don't know. Doesn't seem that hard to me. It's hard for some people. It is. It is. <laughs> you know, no, you're right. It is. It is. It is. All right. So I'm going to be sending you my movie. I'm not sending you anything. I just would like to send you my movie. That oh, no, that would be fantastic. I don't know how to make a movie. Oh, okay. I thought. <laughs> what I'm saying is the idea is there. Is it the one about the people in heaven? Oh, I didn't say they were in heaven. When did I say oh, they were in heaven? <laughs> after the after did I say they were in heaven? <laughs> heaven and hell ain't have nothing to do with my movie. I promise you that. <laughs> They'll probably be in like Denver. Okay. New York. I'll probably base it in like they're actually there. I don't know if they're like a ghost. It doesn't even matter. Maybe they're just voices. You don't even see them. (laughs) There's all sorts of creative decisions. Hey, if somebody out there hears this and you want to collaborate on a movie with me, I can do idea stuff and you do everything else, email me. I'm telling you, we're going to win an award for this shit. So you right. believe in an afterlife, but it's in, in Denver, did you Denver. say? <laughs> That's where everyone goes when they die? A lot of people go there. <laughs> That's a question I ask people sometimes, especially if they've mentioned or brought up having that belief or having been brought up with that. Like when you were thinking about taking your life or when you attempted, did you think about where you were going to go? Heaven, hell? Those are interesting moments. Right. Yeah. I guess heaven is just my shorthand for, I was kind of raised in. Episcopal church and that's just what I first think of because I don't 
necessarily think of hell, but like, I don't know. I think personal for my own personal belief. I don't know if I really believe in an afterlife. Interesting. All right, cool. Well, listen, I've, I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you. Uh, this yeah. was so interesting. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't expect to get into some of those really big moral and philosophical questions. Thank you, Sharon. And uh, hey, I hope your days are at least decent, if not better. Oh, thanks. You too. You too. Right. Thanks for doing what you do. Have a good night in Chicago. Thanks. Bye. 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 As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support and special thanks to Sharon up in Illinois. Thank you, Sharon. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. There are also a few links in the show notes. The first link is another way you can reach out by leaving us a recorded message. There are also some links on how you can help us out with a financial contribution if that's something you'd like to do. And we would, of course, appreciate it. But no matter how you support us in this podcast and these survivors, thank you. And that is all for episode number 132. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.